this, narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Hello and welcome back to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I'm James Newton, your co-host. For those of you who are curious, we will be starting this review free of spoilers. Our casual correspondence segment will follow, and then we will end this episode with a spoiler-filled discussion. Today, we're going to be looking at the Duffer Brothers' original Netflix series, Stranger Things. We will be covering the first three seasons... Daniel, tell us about Stranger Things. You have to be under a rock throughout 2016 at least to not know what Stranger Things is. It's a Netflix streaming series, and I would argue it's one of the first that really shot Netflix into a spotlight, not just for its streaming, but for its original content. Uh, The Duffer Brothers invented Stranger Things, and they first called it uh, Montauk, I think it was called. Uh, It was a little bit different looking, but still the same vibe as the show we know and love today. They pitched it around to different studios. They said, yeah, we're only doing like eight or nine episodes. And the studios are like, you know what? We'll give you the budget if you bump it up to 12. The Duffer Brothers were like, I don't think the story can handle 12 and being stretched that thin. (laughs) Uh, The irony of that statement. (laughs) So they kept getting shuttled around, uh, kept getting rejected. And Netflix was the one that said, you know what? Let's take a chance with you. And boy, what a chance it was. Now, uh, Stranger Things is kind of extended past Netflix. You can buy at least the first season on uh, DVD. Uh, there are some very clever DVD collections that are actually designed to look like a VHS. And then Ooh. you open it up and there's the DVDs. Anyway, I'm not here to plug the merch. <laughs> but what I am here to say is it has expanded beyond its streaming service. And it has become as much of a blockbuster franchise as one could possibly hope for outside of the movie theater realm. Yeah. So James, what do you think overall that the series does well or perhaps doesn't do well? Let's see. Overall, I would recommend this series. Uh, I used to love it. Uh, I watched it all last summer. <laughs> so I, I was living <laughs> under a rock in 2016, Daniel. I'm one of those rock livers. Um, Called out. Not a liver of a rock, but I lived under one. I really liked the mystery aspect. I really liked the thriller aspect. I really liked being taken into the 80s and being so interested in the lives of these small Midwestern families. And just like, I don't know, grew up in the Midwest. So it's interesting to see like, well, what if we had like a big Hollywood thriller mystery set in like literally my hometown? Not literally, but basically my hometown. I recommend Stranger Things, but I would say that this show slowly dissolves in acid the mm. further you go into it. That's um, a strong, uh, strong claim. Yeah, okay, acid is pretty strong. It slowly dissolves in Coke, Coca-Cola. Okay. Coca-Cola okay. corrodes away at, at teeth. 
So let's so it say tastes it, sweeter, but the quality is not as good. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point, actually, because it becomes more and more saccharine as the show goes on. It becomes more like, oh, isn't that sweet? Or more like, oh, that character, that rascal. Um, <laughs> but I love the first season and most of season two. What about you, Daniel? I have more thoughts about that, but I want to hear yours. Yeah, sure. I'm inclined to agree with a lot of what you're saying. Yeah. I do think season one is a great lesson in, I mean, just practical world building, especially when you have multiple protagonists. I so think many. it does a good job of paying homage to movies of the 80s, especially Spielberg-esque movies involving a band of kids discovering this mystery that is so much bigger than they are. It does a good job of paying homage, but, and I do want to make this clear, it also tells an original story. It is not merely an homage to all the things you like. Yeah. It is an original story that happens to be similar to all the things you like from back in that time period. Mm -hmm. So that's what I appreciate the most about this. There's creativity. There's cleverness. I wish I could say the same about the later seasons, <laughs> but we'll get to that. The characters are memorable in this. I think it blends a lot of genres together while still having a cohesive feel throughout. Um, this feels dark. Um, this doesn't feel sanitized. And yet it also there's a family aspect to this and series. a wholesomeness. Yeah, there's wholesomeness. I love it. There's such strange wholesomeness in this series, but it's worth it. You know, when the wholesome moments come, you're like, oh, isn't that nice? If you want to know, hey, what does a good world building and a good story look like? And then what does that same story look like? But in a slightly worse way or a. <laughs> considerably worse way i think stranger things is a great case study and i think it's also again without ruining anything i think it's also a great case study on how budgeting can affect for better or worse a series oh yeah and not just budgeting but fan attention and fan hype and i do want to say fan influence is in and of itself not a bad thing it's what you do with it that is going to determine the difference, at least for me. Like James and I have encountered this dilemma many times while doing the show because we have what we want. We want to talk about movies. We want to develop ideas and brainstorm and all that fun stuff. But James and I also have to pay attention to our audience, to our fans. Mm. And, you know, James and I could spend four hours or at least two and a half talking <laughs> about a specific show or movie, but... We understand not everyone's going to like listening to that, and that does not always make engaging entertainment. Yeah. And so it's about James and I compromising on what we want to make sure that our content and this show is more accessible. And it's also about us knowing what we aren't compromising on so that our show can still re retain its brand and its uniqueness. But with Stranger Things, it sort of feels like the opposite, where the fans have too much influence, and because of that, the ship gets steered off course uh, yeah. And it becomes less of a great thing in my eyes. And and there have been times where I've even wondered, like, should I even recommend season three to people hmm. and just draw the line and say end at season two? I don't know. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, ironically. And I know season three got so many views, but I, not a lot of people were talking about it. And I think what's jolting, and it should be if you're a creator, especially of proficient film or animation what you need to consider is that people may watch your movie, but not everyone might talk about your movie. Hmm. Does your work of art have anything to add to a conversation? Does it get heads rolling, minds turning? Maybe not heads rolling. <laughs> 
I, I hope are people not. beheaded because of this movie? If not, <laughs> you are not making good cinema. You may quote me on that. But I think if I would reach so far, I think the first season is so endearing because it took risks. They had a very low budget and they had to take creative risks with that budget. Um, their story was safe in some ways because they were referencing 80s nostalgia, yeah. but very risky because they're doing something new and original based on homages that we're kind of used to at this point. Mm. And there's so many people that I remember when the first season came out, everyone was talking about it. I was still in college at the time. And obviously, you know, I was a film major. All of my other fellow film majors would not shut up <laughs> about this show. So I'm like, well, I don't have Netflix yet, but I, I want to see this now. And I saw it and I appreciated it for what it was. It was pretty cool. Season three, from what I understand, more people have watched it than the other two seasons, but not a lot of people talk about it. And I think that's something that people should take into consideration. Mm. You were talking about uh, 80s tropes and movie tropes that people have seen a lot before. Um, and I think that that sort of touches into a concept that I started to research whenever Stranger Things sort of started chugging along and becoming this powerful engine. Um, a concept called the 30-year cultural cycle. Um, and that is something where you get nostalgic feelings from things that happened 30 years ago because people that are producing content, people that are cultural influencers are now 30 years old or 40 years old and are in power and are able to create things like that. The Duffer Brothers were 80s kids and that is why they created Stranger Things because they wanted to recreate that nostalgia that they felt as little kids. And so I think things are starting to wear off. Things with the 90s are sort of starting to pop up. You can see it in fashion, actually. Mom jeans and scrunchies and crop tops, those are 90s things. Windbreakers, yeah. those are all 90s things. Uh, but it will start showing up in movies, too, I guarantee it. And it's already showing up in music in some ways. I think Stranger Things is sort of a dying star in some ways because of that. That 30-year cycle is starting to move on to the next decade. So, James, before we continue, let's rate each season out of five stars. How would you rate it? I'm going to say season one gets a 4.5 out of five. Season two gets a four out of five. And season three gets a 3.5 out of five. So I'm very similar. I think season one will get 4.5. Season two, probably four. Season three, I'm going to say is a three out of five just because I think it was average. Yeah. Um, I think the risks it took in comparison to the things that didn't work, kind of canceled each other out. Yeah. And overall, it felt very average. You're so. right. You're right. My 3.5 was kind of a soft 3.5 anyway. Like, it was a Don't 3 with a pillow out. next to it. Like, it's not a very beefy 3.5. It's a pity pillow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to casual correspondence. All right. So we actually have casual correspondence. Yeah. Is that right? That's amazing. Yeah, it feels so good. Hi, everybody. Thanks, uh, guys, so much. So things tended to work out a lot better uh, whenever I put out Instagram uh, polls. So uh, everybody keep your eyes out every Wednesday. I'm going to be putting up an Instagram poll at some point uh, asking the next casual correspondence question. So keep your eyes peeled, Instagram followers. If you're on Facebook, you can go ahead and just send us a DM uh, whenever we ask the question at the end. Could you go ahead and kick us off with the first question, Daniel? Yeah, sure. So a while back, we asked you, uh, back in our Parasite episode, we said, 
If another 2019 movie could have won Best Picture, what would it be? And we're going to talk about three of your responses. So, Jacob from Oregon, a stranger who has never once appeared on the show, and we have not ever uh, <laughs> talked about questions he sent in, uh, said Klaus. Klaus should have won Best Picture. Huh. So, my two cents right off the bat, I'm just, I'll be frank here. Yeah. Um, I, I have a hard time understanding why. I think Klaus did take risks, and I think what should be rewarded was the risks that it took. Klaus had the potential to be awful. In terms of the genre alone, which I hate to say because I wish that wasn't the case, yeah. but it turned out to be pretty all right. And James and I talked about it in season one. was not a perfect movie. They made some choices that we questioned and were kind of disappointed by. But overall, I think the risk slightly outweighs the detriments. And yeah. I say slightly. So I think it was a surprise, to be sure, and a welcome one. However, I don't personally feel it was best picture quality. I certainly think that this film deserved um, deserved best animated picture. I, I would say that that would sit right up there with How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World. Or just How I to Train Your that. Dragon, The Hidden World. Sorry, there's no three in there. Oh, I've been corrected before. Um, <laughs> so I think because of the technical innovation, the way that volumetric lighting is a new technology that I think is very fascinating and I think should be acknowledged. And this movie got nominated I think it should have won best animated picture best picture though. Uh, I've seen parasite and it's really hard to say that this holds a candle to parasite in terms of just raw narrative power. Jacob, I respect what you're saying and I think Klaus is awesome. And I think you guys should all check it out. It's on Netflix. We're talking about Netflix today, but um, you should also check out parasite. It's, it's really good. I think you would like it. The next uh, answer we have here is uh, from Joe from Illinois. Hi, Joe. Joe, hello. Um, he says the best picture winner should have been Joker. And I've actually heard several people say this. So, Joe, uh, there are mm. other people out there that are like you. Um, you should you should join the Facebook group or whatever, some sort of club that exists where Joker should have won. We live in a society where Joker should have won. <laughs> I, that's a nice reference. You know, I, I do want to make it clear in the middle of all this. I do want to make it clear. We're not shutting down you for your personal opinions. We are just um, being bluntly honest with ours. You've had a chance to respond with your answer to the question. And now we're responding to how we feel. I'll kind of continue with my thoughts on Joker, James. Sorry, I kind of took your thunder there. No, go. Um, I don't have issues with Joker being nominated for Best Picture. The reason why I'm glad Joker didn't win Best Picture was because Parasite had so much thought and calculation put into it. And the theme is primarily where I was hitting at in our previous episode about Parasite. Yeah, uh, The theme is what holds everything together. And frankly, it's what should in your story. Your character is going to represent or embody your theme. Your antagonist is going to embody either your theme or the opposite of your theme. Mm. Um and everything that happens should reflect that message you're trying to send. Parasite does this phenomenally well. Parasite is a dark movie. Parasite is rated R for a reason. Parasite <laughs> is not for everyone to watch. And Parasite is not going to make you feel good all the time. Joker is similar to Parasite. It's rated R. There are some dark moments. And I wouldn't bring my five-year-old kid to watch it no. if I had one. I don't have a five-year-old kid. You don't? If I did, I would not have him watch Joker. 
primarily the reason is, and I forget if we touched on this in our episode on Joker or not, but the bottom line is Joker is dark for darkness's sake. It feels like it's just, let's just get dark. Let's get dreary and depressing just to show this character. There's garbage everywhere and rain and sadness. And you're garbage and you're getting beat up and have diseases and mental illness and your mom's getting screwed over and I don't know. Here's the thing. Joker is a character-driven story. Parasite contains story-driven characters. And for that reason alone, I think Parasite still should have been Best Picture. Oh, that was a juicy soundbite. I don't know how else to follow up on that. Um, (laughs) I think, yeah, what you already said is that Parasite uh, carries the same message as Joker, but is done better uh, and made me think a lot more. Joker sort of slides a piece of paper under your door and says the class system screwed up and Parasite Parasite points it out in such overt and subtle ways, but not in overt ways that feel heavy handed. So the final answer we have is Milan from California, another person that I've never met before at all on the show and uh, we've never discussed anything. Love you, Milan. Love you, Milan. Uh, Mr. Disneyland says marriage story should have won best picture. Now this is a very interesting one because this is a movie that neither James nor myself have watched yet. Yeah. Um, So I don't have a lot to discuss in terms of specificity. However, from what I understand of a marriage story, and again, this is something that may not age well on this podcast because I do want to watch it eventually. Yeah. Um, my understanding of marriage story is it is about a marriage falling apart. It's a realistic assessment of a real life scenario. Parasite is a thematic assessment of a more widespread scenario that's more widely felt. I didn't mean for this to turn into a defense of Parasite, and I don't think James meant to either. We are the prophets of Parasite, and we will defend it. Guys, seriously, if you haven't seen Parasite and you're serious about film... You need to watch it. Yeah. The hype is real. And I don't mean that in a way of, hey, there's actual hype. No, there's hype. But that hype is justified because it is a fantastic film. Again, the thought that's gone into Parasite, the depth of the theme. This theme, rich versus poor in Parasite, is so widespread. You could do any story about it. But Bong Joon-ho keeps his focus and he keeps it narrow. And he approaches every single revision of his script almost like a scalpel. Very surgical strikes, but powerful ones. Marriage Story, I'm not sure it embodies that. I feel, and again, speculative, I think Marriage Story tends to go for the heart more than just the head. Parasite goes to your heart through your head. Hmm. And Marriage Story goes into your head through your heart. And I don't want to be told what to feel. I'd rather think about it and then feel something from that. Hmm. But again, that's just me. What do you think, James? That's an interesting thought. I have not seen Marriage Story either. I've heard that there's some very powerful emotional moments uh, and some some incredible acting. And I think that those are two things that are not necessarily huge standouts in Parasite. You won't really walk away from Parasite saying, wow, excellent acting. This is the best acting I've seen in 2019. You also won't walk away saying, dang, there were emotional moments in Parasite that just crushed me. Um, There are some crushing moments, but I do think Marriage Story probably has the leg up in that competition. So I think 
it depends on what you're looking at uh, for a movie for best picture. I think um, from what I understand, Marriage Story should have had a good shot at it um, and it was nominated. So that's reasonable for me. Uh, but yeah, I definitely want to see it just for the acting alone from Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. But yeah, uh, that's that's my two cents. Sorry, we haven't seen it. Okay, ladies and gents, so your question for this week, since we have been talking about the 30-year cycle and nostalgia, we're moving in a decade forward. So our question is, if you had to write a 90s nostalgic TV series, what would it be about? Whatever whatever your responses are, keep them general, keep them vague. This isn't like itch to pitch, and we're not trying to sway that way. Yeah. Just a very general. For example, a cyberpunk horror set in a blockbuster. That's an example. It's very general, but it incorporates the 90s nostalgic theme. Yeah. Let's move on to our spoiler talk. Want to join the conversation? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast to get the inside scoop on future episodes. Feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review. There are many like yourself who just can't wait to see what happens next. That's why there are spoilers. Spoilers will tell you exactly what you want to know in the plot of this film. Talk to your doctor today to see if spoilers are right for you. All right, so now we're here talking about spoilers. If you haven't seen Stranger Things Seasons 1, Seasons 2, or Season 3, you shouldn't be here. You should have left. Yeah. Uh, I think something that we both appreciate a lot about this show, Daniel, is the visuals of this show. Uh, Specifically, the aesthetic of the Upside Down. Uh, is so interesting and so foreign and so new. Uh, there's yeah. nothing like it that's ever been created. It's so fascinating to me. I think another big strength of this show is the characters and how you can connect with them. I would say in season one, it was just fun getting introduced to them and sort of looking at the tropes that they're associated with and then those sort of getting turned on their head at some times. Um yeah. For example, like uh, Jonathan Byers, uh, he sort of seems like, I don't know, he's like the pervy dork, I guess. Uh, he's the kid that doesn't talk to people much. And then he becomes like this detective action hero uh, oh, yeah. kind of guy. But he still retains his personality. Uh, he's still the shy guy. But right. he goes to ham on them Demogorgons, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're talking about me having the sound bite. This will be a sound bite. My boy goes ham on those Demogorgons, yo. I'll be a t-shirt. If you guys want merch, oh, sign please merch. don't know. We'll go ham on those Ben Franklins, yo. <laughs> yeah, I think the visuals are definitely amazing. And I, I do have a soft spot for season three's visuals. Um, mm. They obviously use sky replacement for a lot of shots outdoors, which makes the outdoors just look so beautiful. You know, there's the starry night sky and it's beautiful and I do think it helps with the fantasy 80s vibe genre. And I say fantasy because it's more of a idealized 80s. It's not really the 80s, so to speak. It's just, you know, whatever. So I think season three had that going for them. And I liked how they put their budget towards that. That being said, the upside down doesn't change much visually. And that was made on a lower budget in season one. Yeah. Um, Another example of using what little you have to make something work. One thing I have a big issue with, James, is... Uh, the I'm calling it Disney syndrome, though I think later I might call it Disney side character syndrome, um, mm. where you keep introducing new characters throughout iterations of your series or franchise and then just keep them alive. 
And I'm not suggesting that you just slaughter off all your characters. I'm suggesting maybe don't worry about introducing new characters and just develop your current ones. Yeah. Um, for me, Stranger Things gets worse progressively by season three. And I'm not saying this is the only reason, but one of them is there's just so many dang characters and the way they structure it is like the new Star Wars trilogy where they're all in their different worlds. They've all got their own side characters and then they all come together at the end for a big Avenger style showdown. And I'm like, that's not how it works necessarily. Like, no. Why I want them all together, you know? I don't want them off doing their petty relationship drama. I don't want Finn Wolfhard's character making out with Millie Bobby Brown and having daddy issues with Chief Hopper. Right. You know, I want I want some action. I don't want just this awkward like <laughs> hashtag relatable. Like I want I want my characters to develop as characters, you know? Yeah. I feel they sacrifice character development for character nuance and character kind of just introductions. Mm -hmm. It's like, James, you liked the character introductions in season one? Let's add some more character introductions. Okay, that's fun. And here's the thing. If you want to go that route, fine. Make it an anthology series. Make it so every season we have a brand new cast of characters. If you really want to go that route. Yeah, I think something that you expressed disdain for earlier, Daniel, is something that I sort of have looked at as a large shift in genre from season one all the way to season three. Um, mm. season one was a mystery thriller, uh, with some action vibes, some fantasy vibes. And season three was straight up an action show, uh, yeah. action horror, I guess. Horror in the sense that there's really gross gore. There's strawberry right. jam everywhere and I don't want yeah. it. So I think that that's where I sort of start getting whiplash is whenever, uh, in season one, you get things like, oh my gosh, we think that Will Byers is dead. They pulled his body out of the river too. Ah, it's Will Byers. He's wearing a wizard hat and yep. he's going to force his friends to play Dungeons and Dragons. How funny and quirky and how Will is that? Ha ha ha. But that's, that's, uh, that's the depressing thing to me is that Will Byers is so late to the game whenever it comes to his character. And this happens to oh, some of always. the other characters too. Every season. Will, Every season. Will just gets shortchanged. Season one, he's in he the Upside Down. Season two, he's a demon. PTSD. Yeah. PTSD. Season three, he's a caricature of himself because everyone's a caricature of themselves in season three. Yeah. With bigger casts, you kind of have to do that. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's a good point. That hurts. It hurts to hear that. Here's the thing. Everyone that dies in Stranger Things, and you should be glad that you're listening to the spoiler review and not the non-spoiler review, <laughs> but... Everyone that dies in Stranger Things is not important, ultimately. The only person I can think of whose death I actually cared about was Bob Newby, played by Sean Astin. Because mm, yeah. gosh dang it, that man was pure. That man was a great dad. He was. Now, he was so good. Here's the thing. That's a risk, James, that they took in season two. They introduced this stepdad character. And it's like, well, stepdads are traditionally played as like really cruel or really unfeeling towards their kids. And yeah. they're really just in it for the wife and the trophy wife. Bob Newby cared about his kid. Like He's a good lad. He was, he was such a good dad. And, you know, there were things he didn't do right, but those were things he was unintentional about. He had no idea the threat that the kids had faced. And he was like, why don't you just stand up to your fears? So Will tries that, gets possessed straight up by the mind flayer. Things go bad, but that's not Bob's fault. He was just trying to be a good dad. Yeah. He had no idea about the things at work. Everyone else, though, I could care less about. In fact, the one guy who dies in season three 
is this ex-commie. He's an ex-communist. Alexi. Like, he's like, yeah. He's like, I like America. And then he dies straight up by some Russian It's the Terminator. Hitman. It's literally just walking Terminator reference number three. <laughs> I started to develop feelings for Alexi, but then he died. So you couldn't develop. Like, there are so many other characters that could have been, that could have taken his place. But it's like, ah, oh, we can't manage this cast. Let's just kill off the character that's been along for, around for the least amount of time. How right. interesting would it have been for him to continue to exist and maybe hang out in a covert way, sort of like Eleven does, um, right. since he is now, like, he's now a refugee of communist Russia. There's a big issue I have with Stranger Things, and especially season three, that I just I, I can't keep to myself anymore. The world building becomes stretched way too thin. And I think the one reason is, and I'm going to speculate here. Uh, this is speculation that leads into a genuine criticism. Okay. okay. Um, in season one, I think what a lot of people liked and what I did not expect is that they end things perfectly. There's no loose ends. The upside down is taken care of. Eleven is in a better place. Her future is ambiguous, but we can assume it's a good thing. Yeah. And Will, you know, he upchucks a slug, but that's about it. That's about as much of a cliffhanger as we get. Then I don't know why, but Matt and Ross Duffer both seem to have this obsession about wrapping everything up nicely at the end of all their seasons. And starting with season three, I think it's biting them in the butt. Yeah. Like, they're like, uh, uh, the Mind Flayer's not actually dead. See, he, he, he lives, but psychologically, and he's building himself back up, and he's possessing people. And here's the thing. I am scared for season four because I think we're going to have another Rise of Skywalker where it's like, let's pull the stakes out of our butt. Let's raise the stakes. But how? Well, uh, I, I don't know. And I'm like, look, if you're going to raise the stakes, show us the cost of the Upside Down. And I think season one, and I would say for the most part, all of the seasons do a decent job at showing new threats of the Upside Down while keeping it consistent. Yeah. So you have the Demogorgon and Demodogs. And then you have the Mind Flayer, who's a new threat. He's a different threat. And each one comes with their own intrigue. But all this just to say, you don't need to seal up the portal at the end. You don't need to do that. Yeah. You can make it something else. You don't need to, to do this. I laughed out loud when I saw the first episode of season three because we see communists, we see Russians, they're opening up the portal to the upside down. And I'm like, this is so lazy. This is so lazy. Why are you showing us the threat at the very beginning? Think about how they opened up season one, episode one. You didn't even see anything to do with the Demogorgon. You didn't even know what it was. But we're just throw we're just gonna throw the thread at you right at the beginning of episode one of season three, so that it's more digestible, so that it's easier to access for people, so that it makes more sense. Uh, there's no risks being taken. And here's the thing: I would have been fine if they kept the mind flare alive throughout these seasons as kind of a big bad. Yeah. And then introduced secondary antagonists that the characters would have to fight and overcome. Yeah. But I think they're running out of personal reasons why these characters need to fight against the upside down. And I love how season one and season two, they do that very well. Mm -hmm. Season one, Will is missing. Season two, Will still suffers, but in a way that makes sense, right? right. Of like, oh, he's being mind flayed. Why? Because he was exposed to the upside down and that gives him a link of some kind. Like, I'm behind that. There's a personal reason. I don't want my boy Will to get hurt. So I'm going to stick with it. 
he did some really the actor for him for uh for Will was excellent in season two. Oh yeah. Though. You can tell he's trying. Yeah. Like I think all these actors are very well done. Like they're trying their best to get involved to add to their character. And I think that's a big reason why this franchise is still going strong. Yeah. But the writing and the storytelling have much to be desired. Yeah. Season three, the world building is being stretched too thin. And what I mean by that is when you just have the upside down and when you have the regular world and these families, you need to find ways and invent ways of sustaining the tension. You need to find ways to escalate things. And... The way they do that in season three is they just, I mean, Dacre Montgomery, his character of Mac, uh, not Max, uh, Billy, you know, yep. Um, he's hitting on Mrs. Wheeler and they almost have an affair, but don't, I don't know. And then, <laughs> and then everyone's getting in relationships like 11 and. That's where the fan uh, influence Mike. comes in, I think, Daniel, where it's like, right. well, what if these two? Well, what about these two? Oh, right. man, and, let's explore and, that instead of writing a plot that's right on. Par. But then like Officer Hopper and Joyce, I think is a good idea. I just think they executed it badly because they literally you know? become one dimensional characters in season. three. Right. Joyce. Yeah. Refrain returns back to worried mom mode. And right, Hopper and she never leaves that worried mom mode. And Hopper ever. just yells the whole, all the time. He just gets mad. Has he learned nothing? If if Hopper and Joyce want, like, if, if you want to bring them together, show us moments where they're not their caricatures. Show them moments when they're human, dare I say. Show me moments when Hopper brings out that side that diffuses Joy's worry. And show us Joyce's... Uh, groundedness that brings Hopper's anger down back down to a reasonable rational level yeah if you can show me how they can complement each other then I'm gonna start thinking about them as a couple and I'll start supporting them as a couple and we saw small glimpses of that in season one and season two right but in season three it was just like a will they won't they kind of game and it was like this is annoying right. you need to stop it's like stop we've been playing this game subtly for the past two seasons you can escalate that game but don't make it so as you put it, don't make it a caricature. Yeah. Don't make it a cartoon, you know? Yeah. And now I feel like we've talked a ton about season three, Daniel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because we have the most issues with season three. Right. Um, is there anything in other seasons that you want to acknowledge? Like, don't you think that there's some unexplored territory with the first two seasons? We haven't really talked a whole lot about them. That's true. I loved season one's use of a small budget. And here's the thing I loved about season one. Presumably, I would assume due to the low budget. We're stuck in the Midwest. We're stuck in Hawkins, Indiana with these characters. So the writers have to come up with these character moments. They have to develop these characters that are fleshed out. It isn't dependent on the visual effects. It isn't dependent on the, the spectacle. It is dependent on the characters where it's depending on the characters and our knowledge of them. Do we like them or don't we like, we have to like these characters in order for the show to work. And there was so much love put into the characters, so much multifacetedness that happened. Steve Harrington, from what I remember from my research, he was meant to be killed off in season one, Yeah. but they loved the actors so much. They decided, no, we're making him a reoccurring character. And I'm fine with that. I really liked season two because I was finally invested in these characters and I had a good idea of who they were. 
But then I felt like there was so much time wasted on Eleven whenever they took an entire episode to explore her traveling to, was it Chicago, I think, to meet her uh, quote-unquote lost sister. Um, A lot of people complain about this episode, say it's bad and unnecessary, and it explores something that doesn't need to be. I would disagree. I think the episode is fine. The time could have been used for other things, and I think Eleven could have been developed in other ways in in the same format as a normal episode where you cut between the different characters and their stories. Um, the Lost Sister is an episode that says, what if Eleven just decides to run away because she's too big for Hawkins? And she decides not to ultimately, but instead we could have just had her go through something and say, I'm out of here, and then at the last second just doesn't get on the bus and runs back to help her friends. There yeah. could have been more time spent on having better developed better developed micro plots for every character to act upon. Right. And there's nothing wrong. I think I was interested in learning more about the other 10 test subjects from that lab or who knows how many. Um, But I think the way they went about it shows symptoms that later manifest into the disease. That is season three, where it's not just number nine. No, she's got her own gang that we need to know all about. And, and we need like their own little pesky problems that Eleven has to help them deal with. And we get so off track from the plot yeah. that we barely remember why we arrived there in the first place. And I think if what you're suggesting is correct, which I think it is, I think it's a better way of going about it. Keep it personal. Keep the world where it needs to be. Keep the focus where it needs to be. I would have saved that idea for season three. I would have focused on creating some kind of threat within Hawkins that would have caused Eleven to think that way. Maybe the foes are getting too bad for her. Like the Mind Flayer in season three, she can, she barely handles it, you know? Um, So something like that. I don't know. I think there's one more thing we need to do, Daniel. Okay. I think we need to say something great about season three because we just kicked it over and over again in the dirt. (laughs) What did you like about it? Okay, honestly, um, seeing Billy become this terrifying possessed monster the physical threat he creates alone is it brings me back to that survival horror element of season one Mm, yeah uh, where the kids are all surrounded by the blinking strobing lights and there's no seizure warnings (laughs) (laughs) and they're about to fight the demogorgon or demogorgons um it brings me back to that and then uh you know i'd say an equivalent scene is in season three where the kids are trying to contain him in that hot sauna room yeah, to try and good worm out the mind flare. I think that's great because there's tension. We know what the characters are trying to do. We know what they want to do. And the physical threat is terrifying, you know? Um, so I think that does a good job. And then finally, the one thing I'd say is the aesthetic of the mind flare assembling itself from the fleshy bits and how they fight him in the hospital rooms. I think that was such a surreal fight scene yeah and how 11 just destroys it with her telekinesis yeah it it adds a grittiness to it and it's not like the end of season two where 11 is about to join up with the avengers and there's one phone call away from tony stark hiring her on (laughs) this is a gritty horror and 11 is using her powers for gritty horror things she's not superman she's not superwoman she is a girl with these abilities that is trying to save her friends it's very raw that's what i'd that's what I'd like about that. Yeah. How about you? The concept of season three, uh, if you had just, if the writers had just focused on the body snatchers concept, uh, yeah. I think that it's great. And I think there could have been a lot of paranoia um, 
we need to put fear back into this show. I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> I'm just disgusted. That's all yeah. I am. So right. if, if it's more of a gross out than a spook out, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, and and I think because of that, it becomes an action show, and because of that, it becomes less interesting to me. You were talking about stakes earlier and how uh, they have to continually up the stakes and how they have to continually tie every loose end. I think that those two yeah. problems are connected. If you stop trying to tie every loose end, then the, the stakes being raised in each season feel more justified because there's an ongoing storyline instead of three separate television series seasons. Stakes in storytelling are a lot like stakes, the meat. Oh. Um, slap one onto the fire and let it develop. And then, and only then, will it truly be well done. Oh, very good. I'm Daniel, and this is James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. (laughs) 